Hi, I'm Mary Lyons, the Wealth Woman. And I'm Eric Alexander with Acorn Grove. Welcome to the Big Wealth Podcast. I think it's funny that we still sometimes stumble over who we are and what we're doing at the yeah. beginning of these. <laughs> My name is Falula. Not sure what else I do. Well, um, so today we're going to talk about something that Eric, you and I talk about all the time, but I do not think it is dinner table conversation for most people. And that is really the focus on the difference between accumulation engines and distribution engines. Yeah, so, and it, it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Like, it sure ask does. me the peas. How's your accumulation engine doing? It's not <laughs> dinner table. Well, and and I think what we're really talking about when we talk about this um, is the difference between the vehicles that are going to help you grow your net worth. Right. And the vehicles that are going to help you spend and enjoy your money at kind of optimal, safe, sustainable rates. Right. For a long time. For a long, for long and unknown period of time. Right. Periods of time. So I, I think that this is key because so much of the industry is, our industry, like the world of financial services, whether it's personal finance or even institutional management, it seems to be almost entirely focused on accumulation, growth rate, rate of return. Right. And we, we've done a ton of studying on that. I know you wrote about this in your new book as well. Right. Really, the focus has shifted or maybe almost always been, at least at a personal level, on the focus has been on growth rates because that's all advisors did. Well, and I remember, you know, we had a trip down Amnesia Lane a couple of days ago and we got a chance to interact with some people that that we got to interact with, you know, 15, 16 years ago. Um, and, you know, one of the conversations that we had about is, okay, how did, you know, where did we come from? How did these conversations start? And I remember, you know, way back 15 years ago, <clears throat> we had a lot of conversations about purchasing strategies and about moving money and about the flow of capital. But one of the nagging questions that I always had was, okay, when I hang up my spurs when I'm done, how do I actually do this? Like, what are the mechanics for me getting more money out and getting money out for as long as we can? We had some loose calculators, what you what you and I used to call person A, person B, but they were very yeah. clunky. Like it was very just sort of, well, you'll just do this thing and it'll be amazing. But there was no math. There wasn't a lot of deep math to it. And it always right. bugged me. Well, and I think this is in part because of the difference between kind of conventional financial planning and economics-based financial planning. Yeah. Um, you know, when when uh, you think about it, they're at odds with one another. And recently, uh, I found an article which was written in like January of 22. So it's about a year and a half old. But I was just kind of looking for specific topics online. I found an article in Forbes written by an economist who's a regular contributor named Lawrence Kotlikoff. And, um, you know, one of the things that he says in the very first paragraph of the article, I think, is sort of relevant to this idea as well. It is that economics-based financial planning is at complete odds with conventional financial advice. And that assertion might sound surprising unless you've been following my work for years, but it's true. The two underlying methodologies, i.e. their underlying mathematical frameworks have absolutely nothing in common. Yeah. Economics determines your household's yeah. highest sustainable living standard based on your resources and it adjusts as your circumstances change. And, and I think this is um, 
this is key. He goes on to say, conventional planning, in my view, is about wishful and dangerous thinking. You mm -hmm. set a desired retirement spending target and are given an investment strategy with the highest chance of hitting that target. And what if this potentially super risky strategy fails leaving you broke? Not our problem. Read the small print. We never guaranteed you a rose garden. And, um, and, and I just think this is like, it ties right in with this conversation about accumulation engines versus distribution engines. Because when you look at sort of the traditional approach, the conventional approach, it's all about just take your money, stick it in a bucket and get some growth on that particular bucket. There's not enough conversation about optimizing your sustainable living standards. Yeah. Well, I, so I had a conversation with a friend of mine at church yesterday and uh, he's an advisor and he's like, Hey, I bought your book. I haven't read it yet, but I bought your book. I'm like, well, great. Well, let me know what you think about it when you're done. He says, if I would have written a book, it would have been a one page book by VOO and just hold on to that for as long as you possibly can and be done. And I love this guy to death. He's a dear friend of mine, but it's like, dude, that's like dangerously simplistic. Yeah. Well, and, it's certainly not diversified. Well, and I think his was a little bit of, you know, tongue in cheek in the cheeky, way he was approaching right? it. But, but if you think about it, like his, I, cause I know kind of how he does his job, his investment strategy is just that. Like I went very, very simple. I want fairly aggressive and I want you to sit there and leave it alone and don't ever touch it. So let's talk about that for a second, because what you just said, I think is the key part of this, his investment strategy. Yeah, for and, sure. And this even um, goes to a conversation that I had with my son this weekend, who's eight. We passed by um, a banking institution and he saw the sign and he said, mom, do they do financial advising? And my husband answered right away, yes, they do. And I said, well, I mean... It depends on what you mean by financial advising. Do they hire people and call them financial advisors? Yes. But are they actually doing what I do? No. So it depends on the question that you're really asking because, you know, you think about those financial institutions, it's we're going to collect your money, we're going to put it in account, and hopefully we're going to grow it, but we're going to take fees in the meantime. And there's nothing wrong with that as a business model or as advice. It's that we tend to think, okay, now I've dealt with this issue and we haven't actually built a plan that is, or a strategy that is designed to help you optimize your income and sustain that income for a lifetime, no matter what happens to the world around you or to you. Right. Well, and it, and your your article quote reminded me of that comment. That commentary was, uh, and we had this conversation last week. We, you know, one of the conversations we had was. Economics-based planning is fundamentally designed to help you live the maximum lifestyle possible in as many possible different scenarios as, as there are. Right. Right. Whereas in a conventional approach, the traditional approach is maximum output for as long as you can sustain it, but only in a very narrow set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. If that narrow set of circumstances diverges, your plan is still just the plan, You're but it doesn't- stuck. It doesn't adjust, right? right? And I think that's to your point, right? Whether it's a banker or somebody else, they're designed to do a very specific job. And they, be, they may be doing that job very, very, very well, but they're solving, they're tool salesmen. 
Well, and it's a different problem that they're solving because they're just solving the rate of return problem. And that's, you know, if the primary conversation is about how you're going to maximize your rate of return or get the highest yield possible, that is an accumulation engine by default. If that is the conversation, that is the default, you know, if we are focused on rate of return, this is all about how I'm going to accumulate my net worth. But there is no direct correlation between net worth and what you get to spend and enjoy during your lifetime. And that's why we have to partner accumulation engines with distribution engines. And the analogy that I think is probably the most relevant for this is a golf analogy. There are drivers and there are putters. Neither one of them are good or bad per se, but if you're trying to hit your putter off the tee, you're going to be incredibly frustrated because you're using the wrong club at the wrong time. Likewise, if you're trying to sink a putt using a driver, you're going to be incredibly frustrated because that is not the right club for the job. And so if we think about sort of the conventional focus on growth, 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 those are your drivers. You need that. You, I don't want to discount that by any stretch of the imagination because it's incredibly important. But what we need to do is also understand what are distribution engines and how do they work? Right. Well, and that's and one of the conversations we had last. We had a lot of conversations last week because I haven't seen you in like in person in a while. So we had a lot of conversations. But that that one of the conversations we had was our job is three equal parts: counselor, strategist, and curator. Mm-hmm. And the counselor part sort of is the unintended consequence of getting into this job. I never really wanted huh. to be a counselor. Lots of emotion like, around money all the time. Oh my gosh! Like, and and I'm I'm a five on the enneagram. I'm generally ill-equipped for it. Uh, but I'm getting better because I hang out with you. But then the strategist part is, okay, this is the job we're trying to do. We're trying to go find accumulation engines and distribution engine and engines and balance them. But then to the curation part of it, and I think that's what we're going to go to here is, okay, now that we know we have to have a distribution engine, what does that look like? And how do I know it's a good or a bad one? Yeah. What the heck even is that? So I think the easiest way to understand what's really happening is that we're going to use these kind of two classifications, accumulation, distribution. The accumulation engine is really where you're going to find your traditional retirement assets, 401ks, the stock market, IRAs, whether it's a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, um, certain types of annuities, universal life insurance, businesses, real estate, oil and gas, Uh, uh, ownership, things like that. These are going to be where you're really picking up your yield. And if you think about the, the thing that all of these assets have in common, they're all impacted by the short term fluctuation of the interest rate environment, because they, um, anytime you're looking at running a business on credit or borrowing money to buy real estate or any of that, anytime there is a change to the interest rate environment, it is going to have an impact on the profitability of that particular business model, right? right? And so anything in the stock market, anything in real estate, anything in business is really going to be an issue. Uh, Oil and gas is going to fluctuate perhaps for different reasons, but cost of capital and, you know, maybe not directly, but indirectly is going to impact that as well. And so if you think about the other side of things, what we're really trying to pull in for the distribution is sustainable, long-term, systematic income that is predictable, So that you aren't having to make adjustments based on major changes to the performance of the underlying assets. And the 
way that's accomplished is through actuarial science. Eric, do you want to talk about actuarial science a little bit? Yeah, and I'm going to start with this with a dumb joke, right? The uh, there's a difference between actuaries and Sicilian actuaries. I think it was sort of the running joke of, uh, yeah. you know, that an actuary can tell you how many people are going to die this year. The Sicilian actuary can tell you can tell you who that is. Can tell you who. <laughs> yeah, but if you've ever seen the bell curve from high school, right? You you've got the the big long sort of swooping curve with the heavy part in the middle and the the thin parts in the edge. That is actuarial science. And the easiest way to think about that is car insurance or health insurance, because it all runs on actuarial science. And what car insurance companies know is we've got a million clients in this pool. Everybody's driving around in their cars and we collect little bits of premium payments of, of contributions into this pool. And when one person has an accident, all the people that didn't have an accident that day paid for the people that did have an accident. And what they're right. figuring out is there's some people in that pool that will never have an accident. They're going to be perfect risk the whole time. You have that kind of big middle where they're having some problems, but not much. But they're rare. But they're rare, right? And then you have that real small spot on the edge where every five seconds, somebody's tripping over themselves and running into stuff, right? And because they can spread their risk across millions and millions and millions of people, they can lower the overall risk in their portfolio because they can spread that risk across that that big cohort. Well, what that means for you individually in, in terms of how this fits into a plan is that an event that would otherwise be catastrophic for you, like totaling someone's Aston Martin mm -hmm. or a Maserati or someone's Lamborghini or Ferrari, um, now isn't because right. you have paid your small premium and they're taking the money out of the, the big bucket where everyone is paid in versus you having to come up with the funds for that on your own. And so the way that gets applied in uh, financial strategy is that actuarial science is really meant to help with two things. One of them is controlling mortality risk. So if you die early, that's catastrophic to a plan. If you live a really long time, your income has to last that long. That can also be catastrophic to a plan, especially if you run out of money while you're still on the planet. Um, and then the second way that it can kind of help is that most of the tools that lean very heavily on actuarial science have guarantees attached to them. And so if you take a major loss somewhere else in the world of investments and in those retirement assets or accumulation engine world, the, the assets are guaranteed on this side. And so they can act almost as a shock absorber for what happens elsewhere. And so if you think about this in terms of how to actually weight your financial strategy. If you put too much emphasis on the accumulation engines, you may end up with a big net worth, but but not actually be able to spend a whole, whole lot of that. In fact, we spend right. quite a bit of time talking about Monte Carlo simulations and sort of how the industry has figured out what you might be able to safely spend over the next 30 or 40 years, depending on how long you're going to be retired. Right. And that number seems to be about 3% kind of accepted industry-wide, three to 4%. And so if you think about the accumulation, you might get a great average rate of return, but in terms of how much of your net worth you can spend, it's not particularly exciting. Whereas the distribution engines are gonna be a lot more conservative in terms of the rate of return that you get while you're holding on to them and you're saving as you're approaching retirement, but they're gonna dramatically change how you get to spend your assets once you retire and add in predictability, which means they're gonna increase the safe spending rate in some cases in to up to anywhere between seven and 10%. 
if they are used correctly with the overall plan. So the, the easiest way to think about that is almost like Goldilocks, too hot, too cold, just right. If you have too much of one or too little of the other, it, it it's going to decrease your income. There's sort of this magical ratio between the accumulation engines and the distribution engines that are going to allow you to enjoy more of your assets during your lifetime. And I think that's the key is that if we're going to spend yeah. all this time building it, we want the ability to enjoy it. Yeah. And it goes back to this, the fundamental problem, I think, with traditional planning is this idea of life expectancy, life versus life potential. And I think that's really the key to the whole deal is whenever you look at most projections for how much money can I pull, how is this going to work? It's typically based on life expectancy, which means the middle, which means half the people died earlier than you did and half the people died after you did. But when you think about that, you know, what we talked about, and no one will get the Seinfeld reference, but I love the Seinfeld reference, the, you know, relationship George and friendship George will kill each other, right? The idea of economic space planning and traditional planning cannot exist in the same space because they're fundamentally apart from each other, right? Mm -hmm. And because the economic space is saying, look, I, you might live longer than 83 or whatever life expectancy is for you. You might live longer than 90. And if you're running out of money before you hit your, before you graduate the planet in, in the economic space planning world, you failed. Like you have you right. fundamentally failed that client. And so life expectancy might be the way to go do that because we can get a lot higher distribution rate. But if you just happen to live one more day than you have birth more, one more day than you have money, that, that's a big problem. And that's why that 3% rule is that, that number uh, right. in the accumulation. And, and I think there's a previous podcast where we spend a lot of time talking about why right. 3% is the safe withdrawal rate. And it has to do with fluctuating returns. And, you know, if you take a loss, mm -hmm. withdrawing more money means you're compounding your losses. And then as your portfolio tries to recover, if you're continuing to take income from it, you're eating the recovery. And so it only takes a couple of times before you can create a situation where the portfolio implodes if you are withdrawing at average rates instead of withdrawing conservative so that the money right. has time to recover. And I think really what ends up happening is the, the we do the thing that's right in front of us. I know for me, as busy as my life is, it is very easy to just be like, what do I need to do today? Or what do I need to do this week? And if I'm making those decisions without any thought given to what happens in 10 years or in 20 years, I'm going to make very different decisions than I would make if I was thinking in terms of my lifetime and then making the decisions for the week. And some of them are going to be completely unaffected. But instead of just eating, you know, McDonald's cheeseburgers and fries and supersizing everything at every meal because it tastes right. good and I'm in a hurry... I might make a very different decision if I'm thinking about the context of my life and how long I want to be on the planet. And so I think the context is key here. And I'm going to go back to another analogy that we use a lot, which is that there you, you have to get up the mountain so that you can retire. You got to save the money. You got to make the climb. You got to do all the hard work so that you can get to the peak and be like, yes, I'm here. I get to retire. But it's only, only a successful journey if you get safely back down the other side. And so that accumulation engine, all those drivers, those high rate of return vehicles are meant to really help you get up the mountain. But if you get to the top of the mountain and then you say, hey, is anybody selling a rope to help me get down the backside of the mountain here? If you can find a rope at all, 
it is going to be ridiculously expensive because you didn't plan ahead. And that's where if the entire point is that you get to retire and you get to enjoy as much income as you possibly can, given the resources that you have, you have to start by making sure you are balancing your growth rate and your distribution rate. And that means acquiring different tools than what the rest of the industry is saying. It can't just be investments. It has to be investments mixed with actuarial science, right? Which, which the way we teach it is whole life insurance and how you fund it, how you acquire it. All of that has to be customized for your individual situation, yeah. but it can't be all whole life insurance either, or you may have a great distribution strategy and no assets to distribute. It's kind of like if you can picture a seesaw for most of the people that we talk to when we meet them for the first time, the investments are the heavy, heavier person sitting on that seesaw and there is maybe no insurance in that case or a very light amount of insurance. And it's really right. about being in balance, like so many things in life. Whenever we end up on the extremes, we miss out. I mean, I find right. anytime there's two extremes, the truth usually is somewhere in the middle. And that's really what we're talking about is that sense of balance between all of those. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is important, and I want to kind of jump through this a little bit is there, there's a thousand ways to go do all of this. Like when I think through the job of strategist and then curator, okay, we need accumulation, we need distribution, great, understood, we want it in balance, understood. And then the next question comes to, okay, but what does how that do mean? I, well, how do I know I've got a good one? Right? Because I, I think you and I do this so long, so much, every day, all day long, we think about it at night, when we're supposed to be like relaxing and doing other things. But it's how do I know if I'm on the street, I just pull up this thing and I'm like, my advisor says I need this, or I heard on the news that I need one of these. I think one of the greatest values that we can bring on that side is let's help you evaluate whether that's good or bad, because it may be a really good tool and it's just being used incorrectly. Or you don't need it for where you are right now. Correct. Correct. And so I think that actuarial science is one of the key ways you know it's a good tool. Like, is it based on the law of large numbers or is it based on you hitting it out of the park? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's a really easy way. One of the way easy ways to know if it's the right tool. And for me, the second, one of the second and third ones is the rate of return piece. If you have, if you're not sure whether the money's going to go up tomorrow or down tomorrow, it's a pretty good indicator. It's the wrong tool. Well, it's not, it's not a distribution tool. It's Correct. an accumulation tool. Correct. Right. Right. It's the it's some of the built-in guarantees, some of the floors where the accounts are only going up. And, and you've got that, what I would call the non-correlation with the market component right. of the asset. And to yeah. me, those are the two big ones. What are some other ones that you you and I have talked about? Well, I think if you're looking at accumulation, these are sort of the exploratory investments. So if you're thinking yeah. about real estate or private equity, or you know maybe you're thinking about buying crypto, whatever that might be, the fact that there are no guarantees with any of those makes them by default accumulation tools with varying rates of returns, mind you. Right. But the distribution side of things is going to be based on life expectancy, Right. Um, and building safety nets around that. And it's going to be based on building safety nets around performance as well. So if I think about distribution engines, I'm thinking about certain types of annuities 
because yeah. they're pooling the assets with the larger group of people. And so rather than having to be extra careful because it's just you planning for life potential, there's a large enough pool or group that they can plan for life expectancy because they've built predictability around that. If it's just me, who the heck knows how long I'm going to live? But if there's a million people, we can pretty predictably figure out how many people are going to pass away roughly each year. We just don't know who they're going to be. And so that changes the spending experience for the entire pool, because if one person passes away early and money is left in the pool, then that means it's going to fund the person who lives longer than life expectancy. And if you couple that, that with... Uh, a life insurance contract. And now we've built in the ability to refill the bucket whenever somebody passes away. If right. they pass away early and they left money on the table in one area, they're taking it back through the insurance contract. And if they live a really long time, there's still the ability to replace the assets that they spent during their lifetime for the next generation. And so that, that balance between the two, I think is the absolute key piece of this. Yeah. And then I think being able to ask yourself um, and to know that the decisions you've made are good decisions is really important. And this is where, Eric, I think a, a topic that we covered before, the OODA loop, if you will just yeah. run through this really quick, it's about giving yourself a better framework um, so that you aren't just wondering, man, did I make a good decision or a bad decision? You can ask yourself questions like, does this decision increase my income when I get to retirement? Yes or no. And then, yeah. you know, did you take a step in the right direction or did you do something that might be great, but it isn't going to increase your income? It just increases what the money looks like on paper. Yeah. And, and the OODA loop is one of my single favorite concepts ever, because every time I look at it and play with it, like it explains so much of life and how we do things. But the, the OODA loop is an acronym put together by a guy named Colonel John Boyd. He was an Air Force uh, strategist, basically. And OODA is O-O-D-A, observe, orient, decide, and act. And it seems sort of very basic in its nature, but when you drill down a little bit, one of the really critical components of that is this idea of the one that can go through the loop faster wins. So in, in mm -hmm. a military in a battle. scenario, right? If I can see what's going on, I can adjust, make a decision and go attack before the other guy figures out that there's even a problem, I can control the tempo of the battle and I can win, right? But in a financial situation, I think one of the good things about the, the OODA loop is observe, okay, I've got a new tool, I've got a new product, I've got a new strategy, but the orientation phase is really the critical part of that because what the orientation phase is, the lens through which you look at the world. And if the only lens through which I look at the world is accumulation, 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 big, 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 then there's all sorts of opportunities and strategies and tools that don't ever get considered as part of the the tool set because they don't you're only looking through a very narrow lens but when you can and can I give can I give some examples of that real quick in yeah, a financial please. capacity so I think one of the things that I've seen happen and that has come up a couple of times recently as we've been working with people is this idea of I need to minimize my taxes Yep. And sometimes minimizing taxes is at odds with maximizing income. Mm -hmm. And that sounds weird, but, you know, it may look like on paper, if my goal is to maximize my accumulation, I may look on paper and see, oh, I have $5 million. But if I'm in a 40% tax bracket 
and that's all pre-tax dollars, then I am misleading myself because I don't actually have $5 million. After I net out my taxes, I have $3 million. And so I might be making decisions based on maximizing my current net worth, but in terms of how that money is going to spend, it's totally different. Or I might be looking at, okay, well, if I if I defer the taxes right now, then I don't have to pay taxes this year. I saved money, but you haven't actually saved anything. You've just said, I'll pay them in the future at whatever rate the IRS tells me I owe. And if you're banking that the rate is going to be lower, I would argue that you need to ask yourself why you aren't planning for more success. Because if you do things the right way, hopefully you're pushing yourself into a higher tax bracket as you move along and save money. But if you're making the decisions based on, is this creating more income or creating efficiency in my income strategies, then your orientation is about the income you get to spend and enjoy. That's a different question. You're going to make a different choice because of the orientation. Well, and the things that make it through the gate that make it through the filter are different. Like you're Mm -hmm. filtering out at a faster level. And that really is the whole thing about OODA loop is how do you orient yourself properly in the world so that you're letting the right things in and keeping the wrong things out. And if you can do that, then you're not looking at the entire world every day, all day long, and in, and doing the analysis on everything possible. You're using a filter to go, okay, that's stupid. Don't need that. Don't need that. All right, I need to focus on these three things and pick the best. And that's why I went back to that. I keep going back to that stupid Venn diagram, the counselor, strategist, and curator. The strategist is the OODA loop. And then once you've narrowed down, you've necked down all the choices to these two or three, then the curator role comes in and says, okay, of these three, which one do I need to make a choice on and which one of these three are better? And that's a much easier problem to solve with a very defined outcome. Right. And then you can make that decision and act and you're not spending all your time fretting over what do I do? Because every decision, and as I keep going back to this, I'm going to shut up. Sorry, Mary, I interrupted you. No, you're good. Every, every time I think through one of these decisions and clients don't ever say it, but you know, it's in the back of their mind. If I make a wrong decision, I will be homeless, living under a bridge with a bunch of cats and they're going to call me the troll. Like every decision devolves into that. No matter what decision it is, it always devolves in their heads to that outcome. Yeah. Well, and I think you're absolutely right about that. And the piece that I was going to add in is really just tying it back, right? You have to make a decision. And once you've made the decision, you have to act on it because you can decide, oh, this is the right choice and never do anything about it. And then you haven't actually moved yourself forward. And that's the implementation. I mean, one of the things that we spend a lot of time talking to our advisors about uh, on the benchmark income side, when we're actually doing trainings and we're we're teaching them strategy, is that you can educate people all day long, but if they don't implement the things that you teach them, what have you actually done for them? You haven't materially changed their lives, and so this is where I go back to personal ownership, which is it's my responsibility as a consumer to figure out. Am I, am I observing? Am I actually taking the time to think critically about the information that's being presented, who it's being presented by, what their motives are, whether it's getting everybody to the place they want to be, right? It's only a very small percentage of the population that's actually truly wealthy. So are you pursuing those strategies or are you pursuing the strategies everyone else is pursuing? Um, and so once you've got that sort of... Um, 
observation and you've oriented yourself towards that income focus, you can make decisions about, is this moving me in that direction or not? And then act upon them by acquiring the things you actually need and surrounding yourself with people who think like you do, who will reinforce the decisions that you're making and keep you kind of oriented in the correct way, because it's pretty easy to get pulled off sides. And I think you've talked about this before um, with Warren Buffett, you know, there's all these things that you're really good at. And he's like, name like two or three, and then understand that all the rest of the priorities are really dangerous because they pull you away from the things that are actually most important. Yeah. Well, because I think that there's an idea called attention residue and it's a dangerous, dangerous thing because it's, I've made a decision, I'm moving on, but if you're not 100% sure that that's, that you understand why, and you're making that decision, this little kind of creepy gremlin starts rolling around in your brain and rummaging through all the data that you've collected going, yeah, but I wonder if, right. But if you know the action, you know, the decision, you had the orientation, and then you keep that in front of you, then it's funny to me how little time I spend on decisions that I've made at this point. Cause I know because the framework you've, made, you, you've gone through the entire framework, made the decision and then cleared out the brain space. Yeah. I, I don't have any of the gremlins. I'm like, okay, that was the right decision. And I'm moving on now. I'm going to face new problems that come our way and we're going to go decide on it and put it down and make the action and go on. But I don't have, and, and that's the blessing of what we do to some extent is I don't have the gremlins because I have the right way to observe. I have the right way to orient the data and I can make decisions really, really, really quickly. So I can move on because I don't, I do this all day. I don't want to go do it all at night too. Right? Sure. None of us do. I don't yeah. like budgeting. I do it for my clients. I don't like doing it for myself. Yeah. I don't want to think of it. And, and that's why I, you know, to your, your brilliant budgeting system is a perfect example of observe, orient, decide, act. And you make one decision once and then you're done with it. You don't ever have to think about it again. You don't need the brain space. You don't need that mental drag because we have, am I going to be a good parent today? Am I where I need to be? Am I doing, what about my job? Like we've got enough crap in our head. We don't need more gremlins because every single one of those stupid flipping gremlins are all going, you're going to be homeless. You're going to live under a bridge with a bunch of cats. Like all of them go that way. I find your brain to be fascinating. <laughs> I'm just going to out there. I really love it. I do because I think you're dead on. I mean, we all, I'm not going to call mine gremlins, right? But I, I mean, we all wake up at some point in the middle of the night wondering if we've made a good choice or, you know, trying to figure out, did I just make a decision that is going to, you know, take me off the course or in a different direction. And, and sometimes they're very small things that we worry about. And sometimes they're really big things, but I think having that framework of does this fit for accumulation or does this fit for distribution? And then making sure that you are using programs that allow you to actually measure, do I have the right amount of it? Yep. Because if you have too much on distribution and not enough on accumulation, you might have a great spending rate, but you don't have enough assets to spend. And if you're all focused on accumulation, you may have a ton of assets, but your spending rate may be so inefficient that you're really not taking full advantage of what you've worked so hard to build. And the sooner you actually begin to get those two in balance, the more impactful the results actually are over the course of a lifetime. Yeah. So where can they find you, Mary? You can find me at The Wealth Woman wherever you social media. And you can find me at Economics with Eric, also wherever you social media. Thank you guys for listening today.
We'll see you next time.